You know, Mark chapter 9 talks about Jesus Christ ushering in the kingdom of God. Now, this is absolutely amazing. We're going to study that in about three minutes as we look at the Bible. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hember. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are focused on the Bible as we look at Mark chapter 9. So let's get our Bible guide and turn to that. If you don't have one, stay there. We'll teach you how to get one in a minute. But Corey and Ryan are here. Go ahead. Today, I'm going to be taking a look at the sites associated with Jesus's burial. Ryan? Well, yesterday we studied the life and times of the Apostle John, and today we're going to do the same with his brother James. Yeah, very, very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, Janice, go ahead. Only Jesus. All right, so take your Bible guide out. If you don't have one, write or call us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com and get one. Let's open up the most important book of all, and let's look at Mark chapter 9 as we focus on this to study and to understand what Jesus actually said. Mark 9, 1 through 13. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one any more, but only Jesus with themselves. Now as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it was written of him. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Mark chapter 9 and 10, we continue to study through the great book of Mark as we go forward and we learn some interesting things. What is it with the tendency to accept only parts of Jesus' teaching? Have you noticed that? It's very popular to accept Jesus' moral message. It's commonplace to know that history proves that he lived, he taught, 
and he died by crucifixion. But it's much less popular to accept that he taught and he was Messiah. And even less popular to accept his resurrection, physical resurrection, really? And we want to have it both ways, don't we? We can tolerate a moral Christ, but not a supernatural one. We can stomach a good guy, but we don't want to have to submit to the creator of the world. In other words, God. As Christians, we have come to truth about him. And we have accepted his divinity, his moral teachings, and his message about salvation. In today's reading, we see the disciples struggling to understand the mission of Jesus. And they weren't prepared for the suffering Messiah, nor for the resurrection either. They did not yet fully understand why Jesus had to come to earth. I mean, this is why Jesus taught them and us to pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 9. This is very interesting. And as we study today, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9. Take your Bible guide and turn to the passage. And if you don't have your Bible guide, well, you can get yours by calling us or writing to us or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. When you go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com, click on the Bible guide. It'll take you to a page where you can donate. Thank you so much for your donations. We appreciate them. But also it takes you to a place where you can download it just like we printed it. So you'll have a copy of the Bible guide as designed and printed just exactly like it is on your computer. Anyway, we're going to be talking about Jesus transfigured. Now, what in the world does that mean, transfigured? What does that mean? Well, we're going to find out. It's going to be very interesting. Father, help us today to listen to your word as it expresses the truth about who you are. Help us to hear you, Holy Spirit, and to change our hearts according to what you say. You know, our hearts are so hard, Lord, and, and so often we need to change them. So help us, Lord, to hear the truth about who you are and what that means to us and to accept it in the name of Jesus Christ. And we said together, amen and amen. Now let's take a look at this because this is interesting. Mark chapter nine is fascinating. Here's what it says. And he said to them, assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who do not taste death till they see the kingdom of God's Present with power. The kingdom of God present with power. Nor after six days, then after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain, apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Now, this is absolutely fascinating. Keep this in mind. Jesus reveals himself as ushering in the kingdom of God. Accepting the work of Christ, accepting his forgiveness, grows the kingdom of God in this world. Let me, let me be honest about this. Jesus has come to the earth to teach and do all this, but let's get our mind off of just what we need today. Let's get our mind on what Jesus is doing. He shows his disciples 
I am here to begin the process of bringing the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is at hand and I'm beginning something. That's what this means. The transfigured state and the seeing his clothes like this was remarkable. It was unbelievable. In fact, watch this. Chapter nine, verse four. Here's what it says. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses. What? Absolutely. Elijah appeared to them with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and, and, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say for they were greatly afraid. <laughs> Sometimes we can say something out of place in response to God's holiness. <laughs> when we don't know what to say, it's best not to say anything. That is a great line, isn't it? When we don't know what to say, it's best to just shut up, not say anything. <laughs> because the truth is that sometimes God reveals to us the presence of his Holy Spirit. And that's when we just open our mouths and praise the Lord because there's nothing we can say to make it appropriate. I mean, Elijah and most these men are this over a thousand years old. I mean, Moses was, it was incredible. He would, that'd be a thousand. I mean, he's talking to Jesus Christ. He's right there. And Elijah too. What, what is that? Plus they knew who they were. The second commandment told them that you don't draw pictures of people or make images like this. And so how did they know that it was Moses and Elijah? They knew because there is a spiritual signature to each of us. And we need to keep that in mind. So we learned something here. This is fascinating. Well, let's read on. Mark 7, 9, verse 7. And the cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked around... They saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. Now, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should not tell or they should tell no one the things that they had seen till the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising of the dead meant. They didn't understand that. Verse 11. And they asked him saying, what? What do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why do they say that? And then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come. And they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him. Fascinating. God was displaying what was going on. We should always watch. We should always listen. And we should make every effort to follow God. Beloved, we should be more interested in the will of the Lord Jesus than our own will. So many people in life today are simply interested in doing what they want to do when they want to do it. But hold on a minute. Listen, listen. If God is the Lord of everything, and we truly believe that, then we will do what he desires us to do. We will do the will of God because that's important, beloved. 
So we need to keep that in our hearts and keep that secured in our minds. Let's focus on, Lord, how do you want me to respond? We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you clap and when you get excited, you are celebrating life. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ gave us life. But he promised that the Holy Spirit would be sent. Over the next three days of today, tomorrow, and Friday here on Bible Discovery, I'm going to be taking a look at the potential sites for the burial, the, the tomb of Jesus Christ, which was originally, of course, Joseph of Arimathea's, and he gave it to Christ. Now, there are a few different sites. Last Friday, we took a look at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and today we're also going to take a look at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. On tomorrow's program, we're going to take a look at the Garden Tomb, and then on Friday, we're going to pit these two sites up against one another. So let's start with the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is located in the busy Christian quarter within the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. Behind the church's claim to be built over top of the crucifixion site of Jesus and his rock-cut tomb is a couple thousand years of Christian history. Against it seems to be its location within the walls of the old city, and perhaps it's a millennia of Christian veneration that has led to a mishmash of confusing architecture. To the problem of its location, it is known from the records of Josephus that during the time of Christ, this area was outside of the city walls, but shortly after was incorporated into the city by Herod Agrippa's so-called Third Wall. Archaeological excavations conducted in the 1960s have demonstrated that the church area, long before Agrippa or the New Testament, back in the time of the kings of Judah, was once a limestone quarry. This quarry was then repurposed as a cemetery in the first century BC before being incorporated into the city proper by Agrippa. In AD 135, Roman Emperor Hadrian suppressed a Jewish rebellion, expelled Jews from Jerusalem, renamed Jerusalem and all of Judea for that matter. Over the quarry turned cemetery turned city, he built a huge raised platform filled in with dirt and a temple dedicated to Venus. The area was completely and thoroughly covered. The story of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre picks up again in the 4th century AD with the mother of Christian Emperor Constantine. During her pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Christians living there showed her the site, identifying it as the location of Golgotha and the tomb Christ had been laid in. The area was promptly cleared of any remains of Hadrian's temple, and a few hundred years after its burial, the quarry-turned-graveyard was unearthed. Constantine built a rotunda around the tomb Christians identified as Jesus's and a basilica where Christians could worship and pray. Since the 4th century, there have been many upgrades, switches of power, a few fires and restoration projects to get us to where we are today nearly 2,000 years later. But the truly intriguing prospect of the Holy Sepulchre that makes it stand out among other sites is that Christians living in Jerusalem had a preserved tradition of where Golgotha and Christ's tomb 
was. The Christian church had lasted in Jerusalem all that time without interrupted leadership. 200 years after the site had been buried by Hadrian, they successfully predicted a first century graveyard would be under the pagan temple. Was it a lucky guess? Even in their day, the location would have seemed an unlikely spot. It was inside their current day walls and underneath a man-made platform that held a temple of Venus. It, of course, can't be proven archaeologically that the venerated tomb of Christ actually was the tomb Joseph of Arimathea gave to the Lord. But the place fits, and the early Christian tradition is impressive. There we go. One site down. We've taken a look at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It has a really impressive, you know, list of credentials to it. And on tomorrow's program, we're going to be taking a look at the garden tomb. So I hope that you'll be able to come back uh, and catch that. I think it's going to be interesting as people have questions in their mind. They're going to ask you those questions on the 21st of October when we're live and in person at Faith Gospel (laughs) Tabernacle. We're going to be live. It's going to be great. Uh, All of us will be there. We'll all be speaking. We'll all have question and answer. It'll be a lot of fun and we'll get a chance to meet you. So hopefully you can make time for us on October the 21st. It starts at 1 p.m., goes to 5.30 and we're going to be there. So uh, join us, won't you? Okay, Ryan, go ahead. All right. So today my segment is sort of a continuation from yesterday in which we studied the life and times of the Apostle John. But instead of John today, we're going to be looking at his brother, James. Now, don't get this James confused with the other Jameses in the New Testament. This is not our Lord's half-brother who penned the book of James, nor is it James the son of Alphaeus, who is also one of the twelve apostles. This is James the brother of John and son of Zebedee. This is his story. Despite the fact that James, together with his brother John, father Zebedee, and Simon and Andrew, all ran a prosperous fishing business out of Capernaum on the Galilee, their latest catch was dismal. In fact, they had caught nothing. But that was all about to change. Indeed, just hours later, they suddenly found their boats overflowing with fish. So many, in fact, that they began to sink. What was their secret? Actually, it wasn't a what, but a who. Namely, Jesus of Nazareth. The Lord had performed this miracle partly as a sign and illustration of what these fishermen were to become, fishers of men. Without hesitation, James, along with the other three, gave up everything to become Jesus' disciples. Although in time Jesus came to have many disciples, James was a part of the inside group, known as the Twelve. In fact, he, along with John and Peter, was a part of an even finer distillation, referred to as the Three. This inner circle of disciples witnessed events that no one else saw, including the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, and Jesus' agony at the Garden of Gethsemane. Unfortunately for James and John, their privileged position led them to think of themselves more highly than they ought to, and with the help of their mother Salome, asked Jesus for places of honor at his left and right hand in his coming kingdom. As a result of this power play, they suffered the indignation of the other ten disciples, though Jesus was able to use this as an opportunity to teach his disciples about the importance of serving others. On another occasion, James and John wanted to call down fire on a Samaritan village that rejected Jesus. Of course, Jesus declined, but nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder because of their rash and fiery temperament. As far as these two brothers go, James was probably John's elder brother. 
Though scripture doesn't explicitly tell us, in each passage where the apostles are numbered, James is listed third and John is listed fourth. If this is so, then it may have been difficult for James as the older brother to watch the younger John gain more recognition as a leader than he did. However, there is no indication of jealousy or rivalry on James's part during the early years of the church. If anything, James, like John seemed to do, probably grew more compassionate as he matured in his faith. Sadly, unlike his brother, who apparently died a natural death, James was the first of the disciples to be martyred. In fact, of all the disciples, the Bible only reports the death of James. King Herod Agrippa had him killed by the sword during persecution of the church, a campaign intended to boost Agrippa's popularity with the Jews. Nevertheless, later Christian stories say that before James died, he preached in Spain, where he is now the patron saint. So just to expand a little bit on what happened to James, the final mention of him in the New Testament is in regard to his death at the hands of King Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, there were other Christians who were arrested along with James in Herod Agrippa's persecution, but apparently Agrippa intended to make James's death a warning to the church. But whatever advantage Agrippa may have thought he gained by killing James was very short-lived because soon Peter was miraculously freed from prison, which was probably a great embarrassment to Agrippa. Then Agrippa himself, of course, died a very excruciating death, which Josephus, Josephus described as being from violent stomach pains. And scripture actually attributes the death to Agrippa's failure to give praise to God, which may also include retribution for persecuting God's people, including the martyrdom of James. Very, very interesting. You know, when you begin to study this and, and how the people were, some of the people were killed, uh, and you study the other side of it, you look at tradition, it really gets interesting because you see it seems as if a, an unseen hand moving mm -hmm. in that. And you can clearly tell it's God. Oh, for sure. You, so, absolutely, you can. Throughout the whole scripture, in fact, you, you see examples of, of that, whether it's plagues or, and in some cases, people repent, yeah. you know, and God heals them. And that, that brings you to the place where in today's world, uh, do we see the hand of God? Mm. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. We have to listen. Janice? We sure do see the hand of God all the time, everywhere. I want to talk. Uh, this is one of those segments where I have it all going, bubbling in my heart, and I'm hoping that I can, can get it out. So Holy Spirit, help today. Only Jesus. Um, right before chapter 9, Jesus gives a hard message. He's talking about taking up the cross and following him. He says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he, uh, if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Those are hard words to hear, but those are the true words of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And it's six days later, now we're into chapter 9, that Jesus takes um, Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, up with him, and they witness the transfiguration of Jesus 
they see all of a sudden um, Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus and they're terrified. The scripture even says they're terrified and, and poor Peter, he doesn't know what to say. So he's getting ready to, to, to build them tabernacles, build them booths. And, um, and, but then we, we hear this scene. We see, this is my beloved son. A voice from heaven is what they can hear. And it's father, God saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And the next verse says, suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. And when I read that this morning in preparation for taping this program today, it struck me very differently that it was between Jesus and his disciples. They heard the word from the father. And then when they looked again, it was only Jesus with them. And that's the way it is for you and me. It's only Jesus. We put our trust and our faith in Jesus through his word, the word that his father sent to us, God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit, three in one, not three gods, one person, one God. And it's Jesus that we begin to follow. It's Jesus that we put our trust in. And as we read down through this chapter, we, we see a boy being healed and we see how that the disciples at this point couldn't heal the boy. And so the father brings the boy, uh, or the father brings the boy to Jesus and says to him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This father is coming in desperation. The disciples couldn't do anything. But Jesus said to him, to the dad, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes, because I'll tell you, there is nothing that is impossible with God. Things are impossible to you and me, but there is nothing impossible with God. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You know what? As, as we see, take up the cross and follow Jesus, we're given those instructions. We see these three disciples seeing and hearing the voice of the father and turning around and seeing Jesus who says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. We see this father asking for belief, even in his unbelief. The disciples will change just as you and I do. The disciples at the resurrection and even after uh, Jesus ascended to heaven changed. So will you and I keep on, be faithful, trust in the Lord, read his word, get it in your heart today. October 21st is going to be a great day. We're going to be live at Faith Gospel Tabernacle, and I hope that you can join us. If you're in the Ontario area, or you're in New York area, or Ohio area, or, or maybe Pennsylvania area, and you want to spend some time and drive and come over the border, it'd be great to see you at Brampton, Ontario, Faith Gospel Tabernacle. Now let's pray. Lord, I pray that I would learn how to listen to you and learn how to follow you and your Holy Spirit.